Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. Now, this series is very similar to the, or the format is similar to the Alpha course that we did in our community groups last year, if you can remember that. So it's real simple. Um, we, it's a three-week course, but we're doing it over the next four weeks because we know many of the community groups will be taking a week's break at some point in the next four weeks. Um, but it's a three-week course, Everyday Evangelism, and the website link we're going to send to the community group leaders uh, probably tomorrow. And you'll see on the website link, there's a video for each week. It looks like that. And then you just watch the video and then there's some questions accompanying that. And it's basically discovering this topic of evangelism in the 21st century. Because the way that evangelism took place 2,000 years ago and the way it took place 100 years ago and 50 years ago is probably different because evangelism is a way to try and speak to our culture to speak about Jesus to them. But if culture changes our methods also need to change. And so it's this question, how do we evangelize our city? How do we bring the message of Jesus and the love of Jesus to the city of Bloemfontein in the 21st century? And this course is gonna help you. So make sure that you commit to this. I'm really excited for that course. And so tonight we're kicking off our series called The Beautiful One. Now it's quite interesting, this concept of beauty. Beauty is whatever draws us. We are drawn by beauty, right? It's whatever like sort of pulls our eyes. We want to look at it. We want to behold it. And there's some interesting research that was done on infants, like little babies. And they would show these babies a whole bunch of different faces to see to which faces are they more drawn to or which faces excite them more. And so the uh, hypothesis was that, you know, the faces that the babies get more excited about are more beautiful because they want to discover what is beauty. How, how do we see if a person is beautiful or not? And basically what they came to is the faces that are more symmetrical. So if the right and the left are not, you know, too out of whack and the top and the bottom and, and whatever, if your face is more symmetrical, then you are more beautiful. So that's a nice way to say to your girl tonight, hey, honey, you've got a very symmetrical face. If you want to insult someone, say, you know, that fellow, his face isn't very symmetrical, you know? So that's what they came out with. And this is not new. The Greeks, ancient Greeks, many, many years ago, you know, the guys that came up with some of those beautiful formulas, they actually made a formula where they equated that because they wanted to mathematically equate beauty. And so they came up with a formula called the beauty pie, it's like beauty pie, like, you know, working out pie, but it's beauty pie. And then last year, there was a group of plastic surgeons and mathematicians that came together and they used the beauty pie formula to try and work out who's the most beautiful person in the world. My wife didn't take part because uh, otherwise she would have won that very symmetrical face. I don't know if you've seen her, like her face is very symmetrical. Love it. So anyways, they, they worked out this beauty pie on a whole bunch of famous people's faces. And then they came to this lady, Bella Hadid. She's a supermodel, apparently. And she was calculated, not voted, you know, not voted, calculated mathematically as the most beautiful person in 2019. So that's quite interesting. I don't know where I can get this formula to work out. How do I score on that? But we are drawn by beauty. Now, when we speak about Jesus, we don't know how he looked, right? But we are drawn to Jesus, we are drawn to Jesus. There's something in this person of Jesus that we read about that just draws our heart. 
There's something about Jesus that makes him so beautiful that he draws our hearts to him. Jesus is the beautiful one, but the way in which he is the beautiful one is not in the obvious way. It's not in the usual way in which we measure beauty today. It's not even in status. Things that are important to us as rich and riches and famous. If, if, he, if someone is rich and famous and they're born a royal person, you know, those things are very attractive. But Jesus got none of those things. But yet there's something that draws us to him. Jesus is beautiful, but in a different way. And so tonight we want to speak about Jesus and his hidden beauty. Jesus has got a hidden beauty in him. And that's what we're going to be exploring from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 to 6. And I'm going to start with verse 2 now. Isaiah was a prophet that lived 700 years before Jesus. And so God showed him a vision of who this Messiah will be. He showed him a vision of the Savior of God and what he will be like. And if you've read the stories of Jesus, and then you read, you know, Isaiah 700 years before that, it blows you away about the details and the understanding of how the gospel actually works. So tonight we want to preach the gospel from the Old Testament, 700 years even before Jesus walked the planet. God already proclaimed the gospel through the prophet Isaiah, and it was pointing to Jesus. But the thing about Jesus is that he was actually... Not that attractive according to the usual standard. So verse 2 says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Speaking about Jesus. And if you think about it, the, the Pharisees, when Jesus came uh, to earth and when the people looked at Jesus, there was nothing in him that made us go, wow. Jesus didn't come in a majestic way, riding it on a horse like a king's son that will take over the kingdom or this, this brilliant politician or this warrior king that's going to throw, overthrow the Roman government. He didn't come in a way that made the people go, wow. That's beautiful. That's majestic. He had none of that to attract us to him. He was beautiful in a different way. In fact, Jesus was not only a problem to the Pharisees, or not only unattractive and unspectacular in every way to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, he was actually quite offensive because he came and said he's the son of God. And here came this man. He's not born royalty. So just quickly imagine for a moment, if you are a religious leader and you read about this Messiah that's going to come, apart from reading uh, uh, Isaiah 53, you sort of miss that. You've got this expectation in your heart of who this Jesus will be. And you expect this desert rose, this beautiful one that's going to come and he's going to be powerful and do all of these wonderful things. And then Jesus comes and he's a nobody. No one knows him. His parents aren't important. And when he spends his time on planet Earth, he doesn't spend it with important people. He spends it with other nobodies. And so this is a bit of a problem to these people. And that's why Isaiah explains that, that he would be like a root out of dry ground. Now, a root, I couldn't even find a picture of a root out of dry ground because no one takes a picture of that. It's ugly. And it's, it's trying to explain it's something that's utterly unspectacular. I mean, we sometimes eat roots, but then we even call it something else to make it sound a little bit more beautiful. But I mean, a root is good for nothing. 
The Pharisees, they were expecting, expecting this desert rose. Wow, majestic. Yet then he comes in this humble way as a nobody, spends time with other nobodies like me and you. Now, I don't know if you've ever been disappointed. Maybe, have you ever had a particular expectation of a restaurant and then you go and then you're utterly disappointed? A few years back, my, my mother and my father, they, they've been fortunate to travel the world quite a bit, and they went to Spain, and my mother was so excited traveling Spain because one of the traditional meals that Spain is actually known for is paella. How many of you have eaten paella? How many of you like paella? It's this rice slash seafood dish, and it's delicious. Growing up, my mother made us paella quite often, and it's just delicious. Lots of seafood, and it's saucy, and it's, it's rice, and it's beautiful. And my mother loves paella. And now she's going to Spain, and she's going to buy paella from a Spanish restaurant in Spain. That's amazing. And then she goes there. She goes to this restaurant when they were traveling, and... The waiter first speaks to her in Spanish and she, she can't understand anything. And she thinks to herself, this is perfect. This is just like proper Spanish. Like they don't even understand English. And the menu is in Spanish. She doesn't understand a word. And she pretends like she speaks Spanish like paella, paella, si, 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 paella. It's like two words, paella and si, which is yes. And like tries to act all Spanish. And then they bring her this paella and she's so excited. She's traveled the world to eat one of her favorite dishes. And she was utterly disappointed because the paella in Spain, the original paella is just a whole bunch of rice and a little bit of other food for seasoning. In fact, the, it's, it's quite funny, like the, the real traditional paella that's from Valencia, it doesn't even have seafood in. The original recipe is rice and beans, green beans and rabbit, not seafood rabbit, who eats rabbit? That's the original recipe, and then later on they started putting like seafood in. But you know, we do that as South Africans. We take a pizza that's supposed to be just like tomato base and cheese, and we make it about the toppings. It's like, you know, the, the base is irrelevant to us. We change food, and that's why I believe that the grass is always greener in South Africa. Rather say it's better, our food is much better. We've perfected other dishes from the world. And so my mother was utterly disappointed with this paella from Spain. Now, what was the problem? It was that she didn't necessarily love paella. She loved her version of paella. And don't we do the same with God? So oftentimes, we don't necessarily love all of who God is. We love our version of who God is. Now, this is actually a sermon for another day. Maybe one day we'll get to preach that one also. But I mean, we love the prosperity Jesus, right? That means that I'll never suffer. Or, you know, the, the one that never says no to me. I love the Jesus that says yes, and everything is okay that we do. There's never ever a no. Sometimes we love our version of God, but not necessarily just God for who he is. And this was the problem for the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. You see, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. The Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't like Jesus because he wasn't the one they expected. 
He wasn't the version of the Messiah and the Savior of the world that they wanted and that they expected. Because he came in a totally different way. And he came in humility to come and to serve. Not in rich, riches or in fame or in, in power. He came his, in his weakness was actually his strength. And we actually find his beauty in that. Now, Jesus is the beautiful one, but not in the obvious way. Not in the way that religious leaders expected him to be the beautiful one. Not in the way that we sometimes celebrate even today. He was the beautiful one in an opposite way. Now, just think about this. Even as the church, we still struggle with this idea that Jesus is not the beautiful one in the way that we want him to be. Think about the way that churches has been designed for the past you know, thousands of years. If you walk into a church, does it resemble the life of humility that Jesus was living? Or does it resemble the Roman Empire? This place that in every way resembles just majesty and, and glory and the Roman Empire. Yet Jesus came as a nobody and he taught to love your neighbor and to spend time with other nobodies like himself. So we struggle with that idea. Jesus is, is the beautiful one, but not in the obvious way, in the opposite way. This is actually a familiar concept, concept to be beautiful, but in a different way or in a, the opposite way. Uh, just quickly think about this. Like if a, the ladies will help me here and we're going to preach to the guys for a little bit. But just think about the perfect husband or father for you. You know, usually we think about a, a man of the house needs to be strong and have the outward appearance of being strong. And we would think that washing dishes and cooking food and changing nappies, that is a sign of weakness. But ask any lady here, that is exactly the sign of strength. Any man that is willing to serve his wife and his family by also helping to cook food and to wash dishes, and to change, to get his hands dirty and change the nappies. We find attractiveness in that. We find strength in that. So something that might be seem to be weak, we actually find strength. It's beautiful in the opposite way. Another example is that, uh, I mean, even guys can relate to this, but maybe imagine a warrior that comes back from, from battle, William Wallace. He's full of blood. Or maybe the guy that comes out of his garage and he built his wife Something like a, I've only built one thing in my life, but my wife was so proud of me. But you come out of the garage and you are dirty. You are filthy because you've been working with your hands. You're dirty, but you walk into the house and your wife sees something that is attractive. You see the dirt resembles something and there's actually attractiveness in being dirty. It is attractive, but in the opposite way. And so in the same way, Jesus is actually the beautiful one, but not in the obvious way, in the opposite way. Now, I want to ask my volunteer, Matt, um, if you can come and join me on stage. Uh, so let's give Matt a hand. And so I've got two other volunteers. I'll call them in a moment. Now, Matt is going to represent Jesus for us. And what I want to say about Matt, you are beautiful, not in the obvious way, but you are also beautiful in the obvious way. I mean, come on, look at you. Beautiful smile. Um, and he's going to represent Jesus for us. And this white shirt is just a symbol of the purity of who Jesus is. You see, here's the thing. If, if Jesus only came in this way, that he was absolutely pure and clean, the Pharisees would have loved him. 
Because all other religious leaders usually come in this way, pure and clean. And then they tell other people to get right, to stop with their sinning. And they teach other people how to wash their shirts. And say, look at my shirt. My shirt is clean. Let me teach you how to wash your shirt. But that's actually not the gospel. Because Jesus knew we can't wash our own shirts. So, so let me ask the other two volunteers to come and join me, Melanie and Quibus. And uh, maybe uh, uh, Franku can just help with that bucket of mud. We're going to put it here. Just right in front of my two volunteers, right here in the middle. We'll ask you to come and take it away. This is so that Donovan isn't angry with me afterwards. Okay. So there's a bucket of mud. Now I want to ask my two volunteers to get your hands dirty. So the thing about Jesus was when he came... The Pharisees, now just, just keep them there, get all in there, and so that the people can see how dirty we are. But the Pharisees, what they didn't like about Jesus is because he was spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners. You see, they were expecting, and the way that religious leaders worked is whenever they see people in sin, they would stay away. They would say, no, don't stay me because I am pure and clean. Stay away. Go and clean yourself. Then we can have a conversation. But you see, in reality, it's actually impossible to love someone without getting close to them. It's impossible to get close to someone and love someone and not get their baggage and their dirt on you. Now, if you think about our sin, it's much like this mud that they're holding in their hands. It's something we don't know always what to do with it. We feel ashamed of it. And then we feel like I first need to wash my hands before I can come to Jesus, right? That's usually the thing that, that holds us back. Now, let me just quickly explain this. If you become real good friends with someone and that person has a lot of baggage and mud on their hands, if they've got a lot of dirt in their lives, if you really love them, their dirt will rub off on you. You have to come close to their dirt if you really want to love them. This happens even in marriage today. Myself and my wife, we were joking. And you see, the day when I said yes to Karin, you can't say yes to someone but no to their problems and their flaws. The day when I said yes to Karin, I said no to knowing where my car keys are. It's as simple as that. I used to have a brilliant system. I always know where my car keys are until I came really close to Karin. Now I've got a problem with car keys. And she told me I can tell that story. And ironically, this afternoon, when I wanted to leave for church, I couldn't find the car key. So I literally came to church without spare key. So it's quite funny. But I've got more flaws than her, obviously. But here's the thing. We sometimes think that my, the, my future husband, my future wife, or my current husband or wife, we've got the expectation. They have to sort out their dirt, their history, their past. And then we're going to come together. But here's the reality. If the person that you marry has a past, they will need to deal with it. You're going to have to come alongside them and help them deal with it. But you will also have to deal with their past because their past has got an effect on you. You cannot say yes to someone, but no to their dirt. It's all or nothing. And so what did Jesus do? Did he run away from the dirt and say, look at my clean shirt. You go wash yourselves. Or did he come close? He came close and it had an effect on him. We stained him. 
So you can do it. I know you're shy. Go all the way. Get in there. Oh dear, there goes the carpet. Sorry, Donovan. Come on, get all up in there. It's beautiful. Okay, I think that's good enough. Okay, before Quibber starts having too much fun and Melanie, we're going to excuse them. Thank you so much, Melanie and Quibber. Let's quickly give them a hand. But Matt is going to come hang around with me over here. Oh dear, we really made a mess. It's for the gospel. It's fine. <laughs> Jesus came close to us and he took our dirt on him. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the, the people of the world looked at Jesus, because he came so close to us, he spent time with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and, and sinners, people like you and me. He spent time with us and we stained him. You know what happened? Have you ever had a friend that brings a bad reputation to your whole friendship circle? Like, you know, people think certain things about you just because you're friends with that person and that person does a whole bunch of things, right? You are guilty by association. That happened to Jesus. Luke 7 verse 34 says, um, we, the people speak about Jesus. Now we know he is actually pure and righteous, but people look at him and because of the people that he surrounded himself with and got close to, they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus was guilty by association. Jesus is guilty by association. He's guilty because he associates with you and me. Because he decided to come close to us. Now, just quickly speaking about the beautiful one. A Jesus that is 100% pure and has no stains is quite beautiful. But a Jesus that is willing to get stained because he so desperately wants to come close to us. That is even more beautiful still. That is truly the beautiful one. The one that has no fault, but he's willing to come close to us. Now, here's the thing about the gospel. It's not only guilty by association. It's so much more. It's even more than that. You see, Jesus actually took our sin on him. It wasn't only guilty by association. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. We're going to read that. Verse 4 says the following. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, you know, the reason Jesus goes to the cross because of our sin. He takes the sin of the world on him and he goes to the cross. And when he's lying on the cross, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people, they look at Jesus on the cross and you know what they say? Just stand like this and everyone can see you. <laughs> You know what they say? This man is surely cursed by God. They quote the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, that any man who hangs on a pole or any man who hangs on a tree, you know, that is a prophecy for the cross. Any man who hangs on a pole or on a tree is cursed by God. And so the people look at Jesus and saying, surely God has rejected this one. To die a death on the cross is to, uh, to, to have this, this curse of God on you. And so here's the important thing. It wasn't only the people that looked at Jesus and said, look at him, he's cursed. God looked at him and he cursed him. Because you see, on that moment when Jesus was on the cross, he had all of your sin 
and all of my sin and all of the sin of humanity he had on him and he was no longer pure and holy. And when God was looking at Jesus, he saw sin. He saw the sin of the world and God actually punished Jesus for the sin of the world. Jesus was our substitution. You see, Jesus wasn't only guilty by association. What actually happens in the gospel, it is substitution. Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. It goes on, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. You see, this is the substitution. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed by God the Father. At the end, just before Jesus dies, he looks up and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father in heaven forsakes the Son because he's got the sin of the world on him. See, the distance that we're supposed to get because of our sin, Jesus takes on him and he stands in our way or in, in the place for us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord, so speaking about God the Father, the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. See, this was the plan of the gospel, is that God is not going to send someone to teach us how to wash our own shirts. God is going to come close himself and get stained with all of our sin. And then he's going to take the punishment of the Father on himself. And so the next time that you see a picture of a cross, can I ask you, next time you see a picture of a cross, may you be reminded that the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross it's because of your sin. You put Jesus on the cross, and I put Jesus on the cross. The only thing that, that took Jesus to the cross was your sin and my sin. The cross was the consequences of Jesus coming close to us. So close that we smeared off on him. Now, fortunately, the story didn't end there. And Jesus took with him to the grave because Jesus died. That was the ultimate punishment. But with Jesus, he took all of our sin, all of the sin of humanity. He took with him to the grave and he buried it. So I'm going to ask Matt to quickly go to the grave. You spend your, you know, three days there. And uh, I'm going to call you back in a moment. But then I quickly want, while Matt is going to change his shirt, you won't be able to see him. I want you to quickly look at me and just quickly understand this. You see, if it was possible for us to smear our sin on him, for him to come so close into contact with us that we put our dirt on him and that he takes it onto himself, if that is possible, then the reverse is also possible. That when Jesus comes close to you and he comes into contact with you and you draw close to him, what happens? His holiness, his perfection, and his purity is also smeared off on you. Theologians speak about a double imputation. It's a double imputation, a double substitution. We give our dirt to Jesus, onto him. But as we're doing that, Jesus comes close and he gives his holiness and his right standing before the Father, his righteousness. He gives that to us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
Jesus became our sin. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We give our sin to Jesus, but he gives his righteousness before God to us. It's called the great exchange. He takes our dirt and he gives us a new life. Romans 6 verse 4, we had a baptism tonight. This is what the baptism is a symbol of. We were therefore buried with him, with all of our sin, our old life that deserves punishment and death, was buried with him. His death was our death through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. Matt, you can come back. Let's give him a hand because he's doing well. Now, this illustration is actually not perfect. This shirt resembles the new life that Christ has with him. When Jesus walked out of the grave, it was after he conquered death and sin. There was no more punishment left. And he comes out with his righteousness. But then he gives his righteousness to us. Now, as soon as we say, well, this shirt, then Jesus gives us a new shirt. We can easily make the mistake. And so what I'm explaining now is actually the wrong way of understanding the gospel. So we can make the mistake of thinking that Jesus gives me a new shirt. You know what the problem is with that? It's like saying Jesus gives you a new page or a new leaf each day. And each day you say, I'm sorry for all of my sins. And then Jesus gives you a new page or a new shirt. You know what the problem is with a new shirt? It can get stained again. And you know yourself, you're going to get stained again, right? But that's if you've got a new shirt. And that's why the new shirt is actually not, it's a bit of a broken illustration. It's not perfect. You see, the right understanding is actually Jesus comes with new life and he gives his shirt to us. And he says, come, come into me. And he's going to wrap you up in his new life. And guess what? His shirt cannot get stained again. His shirt can never get stained. He is immune to the sin of this world. You can never be called a sinner again. Even though you might struggle with sin, it doesn't stain you because you're under, your, your, your position, your identity before God is that you have got His righteousness over you. I'm going to read a scripture. Galatians 3 verse 26 to 27 says, So in Christ, and there's so much scripture that, that speaks about being in Christ. It's not that he gives you another shirt. He says, you have to be in me. Because when the father looks at you, then he looks at you through me. And he sees perfection. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I love this. I wish I could buy like an extra, 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 extra large shirt that was bigger that I could sort of open up and you've got an undershirt on, yes. And that we could open up and to sort of illustrate this with you, this is what the gospel is. It says that we are clothed with Christ. What actually happens is we need to get in there. See, there's only one shirt. It's the life of Christ. And we are in Christ. We clothe ourselves with Christ, with this new life and this new shirt that is so holy and pure, it can never get stained again because the punishment for sin has been poured out on Jesus and buried in the grave. And so when you say, I follow Jesus, when you say, I want to get saved and I put my faith in Jesus, you know what happens? You're allowing Jesus to come close to you. You're allowing Jesus 
to take all of your sin. You rub your sin on Jesus. And you allow him to take that to the grave and bury it so that you never see it again. And you allow him to come so close to him that you are clothed in Christ. Let's give Matt a hand. Come on. Maybe as Matt goes and takes a seat, I can ask the worship team to come to the front um, as we prepare for a time of response. Now, friends, this is the gospel. And it speaks about who Jesus is. But before we respond, I want to I tell you one last story. It's a story about Thomas. I don't know if you know the story about Thomas. He was one of the disciples. They call him Doubting Thomas because he didn't believe right away. And so what actually happened is that Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples, and then Thomas wasn't there. That was on the Sunday. So basically, Thomas missed church. And what happens when you miss church? Jesus rocks up, and you miss out a lot. That's the lesson, right? I'm kidding. That's not, that's not the only lesson, but don't miss church. It's so good. You're going to see Jesus. And so Jesus comes to his disciples, and they're blown away by this. And then in the week, they see Thomas, and they say, Thomas, we saw him. He's alive. He's no longer in the grave. He's alive. He's living. And Thomas says, no way. You're playing a, you're playing a joke on me. Until I see Jesus, and I put my fingers in the holes of his hands, and I put my hand in the wound on his side, until I see that, I won't believe. And then Jesus was kind enough. Next Sunday, Thomas learned his lesson. He doesn't miss church. And so he's there. Jesus rocks up. And he goes to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, put your finger in. Feel with your hand the wound on my side. Let me ask you this question. Don't you think it's quite interesting that Jesus still had the scars from the cross? I mean, it's Jesus. He could walk on water. He just rose from the dead, right? All the other wounds, like, you know, he's okay. He's walking around. He's walking through walls. Don't you think it would have been possible for him to do a bit of, like, plastic surgery on himself so that he doesn't have holes in his hand and a, and a wound in his side? Why does Jesus choose to reveal himself with scars? With scars. See, here's the thing. A God that is just pure and holy, that cannot get scarred, that cannot get dirty by sin, and that is just perfect. That is a beautiful God. It is. But a God that is perfect and holy, yet chooses to come so close to us and get stained. A God that decides that he is willing to get scarred. That is a God that is even more beautiful still. That is Jesus, the beautiful one. You see, Jesus' beauty is a hidden beauty. It is actually found in the holes in his hand. It's found in the wound in his side that he was willing, even though he didn't have to, he was willing to be scarred and marred for you and me. He was willing to come close and deal with your dirt, even if it led him to the cross. And that is why it's such a beautiful picture to see the Jesus with his words. He is the beautiful one. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.